What's up, guys? It's me, Heather, back with another chapter of my novel, Strike Boat, a novel about freedom, which I am podcasting for free as an audiobook to make it available to you, the listener, during these unprecedented times in Canada's history. With that, I have a very long chapter to read for you today. Today is February 9th, 2022, and I did already post one episode this morning. I am going to get into this episode here very quickly because it is very long. So with that, here comes chapter 21, Requiem. Outside, back behind the municipal building, Jenna stared out to the west in the direction that Lodi had gone. She saw a flash of lightning, low, on the horizon out that way, and she heard the distant rumble of thunder. It was raining out there. She said a quick prayer that the storm would pass through very quickly and not hamper him from getting back to her. She turned toward the parking lot, held the screen of her smartphone open, shining the blue-white light from its display in useless arcs. She frowned. I can see better without the stupid thing, she thought and put it away. The majority of the campers had made the trek up to the ridge, but some were still here. In one corner of a parking lot, a Volkswagen van was decked out with a canopy and a string of gaily colored plastic patio lanterns in the shape of stubby 1970s beer bottles. A handful of hippies sat nearby. They had a small fire burning and they lounged around it while a pale-haired girl sang and strummed a guitar. Jenna leaned closer and caught the strains of Landslide by Fleetwood Mac, and it almost brought a tear to her eye as the girl's sweet voice strove for pitch alliance with the jagged harmony of Stevie Nicks. Well, I've been afraid of changing cause I built my life around you. But time makes you older, and children get older, I'm getting older too. So take this love and take it down. And if you see my reflection in the snow-covered hills, well, the landslide brought me down. Hmm. I think the landslide brought a lot of people down today, Jenna said. The song was a bittersweet reminder of what was happening that day, but Jenna forced herself to remember that sometimes things that seem disastrous lead to a change for the better. The feeling of nostalgia for her old life hung heavy over her for a moment but that way of life was gone. The young girl's soulful singing brought home what they were up against. Would there ever be a carefree, happy-go-lucky existence in Canada again? Jenna turned her face away. She walked to the sidewalk, leaned against the brick wall of the building next to the small plate that said mayor. Her bike was in ruins beside her. And if that wasn't a commentary on things not going back to normal, she didn't know what was. It was almost as though 2019 was the end of an era. Beyond that point, the way forward was unknown. But Jenna knew one thing. She would choose freedom. She would run from the tyranny of totalitarianism 
for as long as she could, and she wouldn't look back. That way of life was flawed. It was the kind of life that poisoned wetlands, contaminated people's drinking water, harmed their health, viewed human beings as widgets that could be manipulated for a profit, and she would no longer stand for it. Let them come for her. Some things were the hill worth dying on, and free choice was one of them. She looked around the parking lot at the scattered clusters of people, led by her example to stay. There was a quiet reverence hovering over them, an air of the unknown. None of them knew what the future held, but they did know that the past was gone. Society, as they'd known it, was gone. The proof of it was all around them. The people who had come to camp had told her things that Jenna hoped were exaggerations. They spoke of sinkholes large enough to swallow school buses. One young man with a barcode tattooed on his neck said to her that he had seen a whole two-car garage go down, taking the house's lawn along with it like a toddler, dragging a blanket behind him. Jenna hadn't cared too much for the ashy pallor tinting the flesh under the young man's eyes as he recalled the incident, and she'd even liked it less that Loda hadn't returned yet. She leaned her back against the brick and frowned down at her shoes, biting at her thumbnail and trying to visualize the kind of damage the stragglers had described. She caught herself on the word, stragglers? Are the people who have stayed behind taking on the look of refugees already? Bloody hell, she said the words out loud, then dropped her shoulders and hooked her thumbs into the belt loops on her jeans. She had changed into warm clothes and now had on a softly worn hooded cotton sweatshirt. She'd washed her face, cleaned the wound in her temple, and put fresh gauze on. She felt freshly scrubbed and clean and cozy, and she hugged her arms across her breasts, savoring the feeling. Who knew when she'd feel like this again? The land, ar- the land around Mount Bridges was a quagmire. That was what they'd been describing. It was a fucking quagmire, and she had led the call for them to stay here. Structural integrity was decaying. Anderson had said that, and she could feel it. The nameless terror from that morning was still there, just inside her. But there was calmness there as well, and resignation. She recalled a particularly jarring comment that one of the group of campers had shared with her upon arrival. They'd seen a section of the 402 slide in on itself and disappear, taking the electrical power lines that ran alongside down with it. And when those fell in a fury of smoke and sparks, so too had gone the last of the electricity on the visible horizon. If any of them dies, she thought, it's on me. They were well and truly in the dark now, and the darkness was complete. Just as well, the Prime Minister was going to shut the lights off anyway, at midnight, but the boys at Flag had beat him to it. She looked up at the sky and saw a sliver of moon flash by between the clouds, which were scudding pretty quickly. She shivered, tucking her hands into the warmth of her armpits. She felt cold all over. A thunderstorm was brewing. She could feel it. Great, she thought. They had enough water to deal with as it was. 
She heard a commotion and saw a group of people coming towards her out of the darkness beyond the small circle of light cast by the hippie's campfire. There were four of them, she saw. It was Carrie, Tamara, Vic, and Deb, and they were all trying to talk to her at once. It was like a nightmare, Carrie started, and then launched into a description of what he'd seen. The whole downtown is sinking. The baseball diamond's gone. The light standards are up to their elbows in water. The crazy thing is the perspective is all wrong. It's like there's water there, but there isn't that much water there. It's like the ground itself is lower than the houses on the streets nearby. It's like the whole community is center is sinking. Deb was nodding. I couldn't believe it. 81's washed out. There's a crack across the turnoff to Delaware. Christ, there must be 10 or 15 feet of empty air between the two sides of the pavement and the water's washing through the middle. We saw a gush of water come out of the ground, added Vic. It was like a little sinkhole had started there already, but then it pushed back upwards and out comes this glurt of water puking up out of that hole. And that's the last I saw, man. I turned and run. I couldn't handle it. That happened like a couple of feet away from me, man. Vic shuddered as he said it and passed a hand over his eyes. When he opened them again, he had brightened. Then again, it seems okay around here, Knockwood. He wrapped his knuckles on his forehead and Deb swatted him, laughing. She turned to Jenna. It's true, it's really weird, but there's no real damage within about five kilometers of here. It's all to the north of us, Deb said. Jenna heaved a sigh. We're on a little higher ground here. Look, you guys, I'm sorry. I should never have started this. I should never have tried to get people to stay. If anything happens to you guys, it's all my fault. Jenna, don't think like that, Tamara said, coming to stand in front of Jenna and looking up into her eyes. They did this to us, not you. They did this with their greed, and all you did was call them on it. I want to stay here. I want to help us heal. I don't want to see them come in here with their bulldozers and shore up this here place and regrade that over there. I don't want them to get their tentacles back in it. I want this land to heal, and it never will if guys like Lawrence Fallon have their way. They shot at us, Jenna. They shot at us to shut us up. Even though their gig was over, even though it's bloody obvious what happened, take a look around you. They didn't need to shoot at us, Jenna. They did it because that's what their kind do. We're making them hold the bag, and they might actually have to pay for what they've done sometime if they let us live. And they don't want to pay. They want to take. So don't you ever feel like you're to blame for this. Because of you, we've got a chance to save this land, to take it back. It's like you said, fuck them. Jenna's eyes were full of tears, and she was nodding. Thank you, Tam. Jem Jenna grasped Tamara for a hug and smiled, and as she did, her tears fell simultaneously. Thank you for saying that. I was getting pretty sideways there for a minute. Thanks for reining me back in. Vic gave a little cough. After what we saw back there, he said, slowly holding Jenna's gaze, I like our odds a lot better here than on the road. Those cave-ins, man, I'm telling you. 
if the entire stretch of highway leading the way out of the evac zone is intact, it's got to be a bloody miracle. We know of two whole stretches washed out in this area. I guess it's possible that the damage is limited to just this area here, but that's unlikely. Jenna popped out her cheeks and blew out a cleansing breath of air. Please protect them, she thought, and then she smiled once more at Tamara. Your mom's upstairs. Go on up and let her know you're back. And then what say we introduce ourselves to yonder campfire and see if we can't all find a spot to sit around it. Sound good? Tamara nodded. She grabbed Carrie by the hand and ran with him up the stairs. He held his cell phone open, lighting the way ahead of them. Jenna turned to Vic and Deb. I was thinking we could sleep up in the council chambers. That is, if you're all okay with camping out together. Mary and I were thinking, you know, strength in numbers. Plus, it's got the softest carpet. Deb was nodding. Sounds good to me. Vicky and I will leave our gear right here so that when Lodi gets back with the boat, we can throw it in. Then we'll go set up our spot for the night and meet you at the campfire. Jenna watched them disappear into the building, and then she crossed the parking lot and walked over to the campfire. Mind if I grab one of these? She asked, gesturing toward a stack of beer cases piled up against a planter's box she had spoken from. A dark-haired teenager laughed and shook his head. He was leaning up against the pile of beer cases, and he reached an arm behind himself and fumbled around before coming out with the can and tossing it to her. We stocked up on the way back over here. The whole back wall is gone from off the beer store. Looks like a fucking war zone, man. We were looking around trying to make sure no one was laying there hurt when we happened to notice all this beer, and we thought we'd better bring it along for safekeeping. He winked at her, and she laughed, dropping down on her haunches beside him. She cracked open her beer and felt the warmth from the fire on her cheeks. As the conversation around her resumed, she found herself liking the easy affability of these people. She felt at ease. These teens had no agendas. The world they lived in had become so superficial, she mused. But amongst these youth, with their mellow way of being, There was no artifice. They were what they seemed to be, and that was something that she liked the sounds of. Still, as she took a sip of beer, her thoughts turned anxious. Come on, Lodi, she was thinking. Please come back to me. Where are you? Lodi? There was a note of panic in Wanda's voice, and it wasn't doing much to help his concentration. He couldn't blame her because the water was well up over the hubcaps now and climbing. They were in her dooryard just outside her barn. He'd backed the jeep as close as he could get it to the boat trailer, but it wasn't easy because he was standing in water as high as his waist. He'd managed to hook the boat trailer's catch over the jeep's ball hitch, but try as he might, he couldn't seem to snap the lock arm into place. The problem wasn't strength, it was rust. The muscles in his arms and back were knotted with effort, but still he couldn't get the damn thing down. His feet could not find solid ground. No matter how he tried, he couldn't find a sturdy enough patch of land to brace his weight long enough to maneuver the lock arm into place. He turned his back to the bumper and tried bracing his weight against the body of the jeep. He gave a a hard push, and the fucking thing finally snapped home. He felt his shoulders sag with relief. 
He raked his forearm across his eyes to clear them of the rain that fell in steady sheets. He cast a worried glance up at the sky. The wind had picked up, and in had come the rain. He could see low lightning flashing blue on the horizon to the south, and that was the direction that he had to travel to get back to the municipal building, to get back to Jenna. The frown line running down between his eyebrows deepened. This is going to be a bitch, he thought. He climbed into the driver's seat and cut a glance at Wanda. She had run inside the house to change and came back dressed in rain gear, the bag slung over her shoulder. She looked up at the sky as well, he saw, then pursed her lips and climbed back in without a word. Even when the water had risen up around the tires, seeping in like a pack of hunting snakes, she'd kept mum. The jeep's engine was running, though, and that was good. He looked at her. You all right? I'm fine. I hope they're faring better back there, that's all. This trip ain't going to be easy. No guarantees. You sure you don't want to hold up inside the house? I'll come back and get you tomorrow. Wanda looked over to her wraparound porch, just barely visible in the headlights. There was a current of water eddying around the corner of the woodwork, and she shook her head. House will be gone tomorrow, she said. Foundation was going already. It won't hang on in this. He nodded sympathetically. I'm sorry, doll. She bit her lip and nodded and he saw her wince with a sudden sharp ache of loss. It only lasted for a second, and then she gestured for him to proceed. Oh, go on. It's all right. If I go in there, I'm going to have to clear out my fridge. Everything must be smashed to bits in there from this morning. You're doing me a favor. She smiled weakly, and he returned it. I don't want to be responsible for making you clean, he said. All right, come on, let's go. He didn't waste any time. He shifted into reverse and eased out into the current, rolling slowly backward down what once had been Chester Blake's neatly manicured back lawn. When Lodi felt the tire's grip on something that seemed halfway solid, he nosed it gently to the right and then cranked the wheel and shifted into drive. He inched forward, cautious, feeling the weight of water pushing against the driver's side front fender. The Jeep bogged down, coughed, then lit back up, a cloud of blue smoke belching from the tailpipe. He was only going to get to do this once, he saw. There was a short incline some distance ahead and to their left. The headlights barely picked it up, but he thought he saw neat rows of corn emerging from the black water about a hundred yards ahead. Hey, Wanda, how tall is that corn? About two feet, two and a half? He looked at her debating. That meant that they would have to drive through water that was at least as deep, since it was only as the rows of plants marched their way up the hill that they became visible above the roiling surface. She shrugged. Go for it, she said. Don't be shy, either. Steady pressure. Don't let off. You feel her slipping. Yes, ma'am. He let off the brake and started forward, and they almost didn't make it. At the deepest point, the water slewed the jeep sideways, the boat trailer swinging downstream with the current. That almost tipped them, but he followed her advice and gunned the engine, and at last they crawled up out of it. As they drew up onto solid ground, he heard her laughing. He braked as little bits of mud kicked up from the tires and fell in tiny plops around them. He smiled back at her and held up his right hand, 
and she slapped him a high five. You should have seen your face, she laughed. Tough guy, eh? Worried about a little stream like that? Shoot. He let her make her joke. Her laughter was good. It was better than panic, but then he sobered. Hey, Wanda, you know of any high ground between here and where we're going? I don't like the odds of making our way back to 81. Looks like we're going the field way. She pointed along the tree line to a small rise that ran more or less in the direction they were headed, and then they started off, the boat bouncing and jostling behind them, his chickens clucking away in the back. By that time, in the downtowns of most of the major urban centers in the evac zone, looting had gone rampant. Wall was in his office, watching on a YouTube live stream. Hordes of people, many of them from marginalized communities, where access to a personal vehicle and the ability to head outside the evac zone was considered a privilege, swarmed through the downtown corridors, spray-painting buildings, smashing windows, carrying armloads or pushing shopping carts full of looted product and making for God knew where with it. Huge crowds of protesters surrounded police stations and city halls, breaking windows and spray-painting anti-establishment graffiti on the walls. Walmarts were being emptied. The evacuation the Prime Minister ordered was not going so well. That damn Jenna Walters and her live stream from earlier caused this, Wall was thinking. The conversation that they'd had on camera, her and those friends of hers, questioning the narrative about the injections about the debt scheme, hypothesizing about the labor camp. People had seen it. Wall himself had seen it. And what he was looking at on his tablet screen was what happened when government tried to push an agenda in bad faith and the people could see through it. They were refusing to get on Cochrane's buses. They were refusing the injection. They were refusing the waiver. And two at one, the buses remained empty. As a result, there were brawls breaking out, protesters clashing with the bus personnel, shots being fired, chaos. There was no medical personnel left inside the evac zone. Hospitals had closed. Elvis had left the building. Some of the citizens were trying to attend to those who had been wounded. He could see it on the live stream. Kindness amid chaos. People helping the fallen while at the same time raging against the machine of inequality, an air of solidarity amongst the citizens, the people united against their common enemy and willing to brawl to protect their freedom. The video he was watching zoomed in on a shirtless youth of about 19, bleeding from several cuts on his body. They want us to turn on each other, but we won't, he said. There's something wrong about this madness. We don't trust it. If they really had our best interests at heart, at getting us to safety, they wouldn't force this needle into us or make us sign away our finances. It's wrong, and we can feel that it's wrong, and we won't go along with it. Wall watched this in his office in Ottawa in the dark. All the lights were off, save for the bluish-white glows from the tablet he was holding and the laptop beside him lighting his face up just enough to cast shadows on the deep lines of dread that were etched in his skin. He scrolled to another video. In this one, he saw something that stopped him cold. It was an on-the-ground live stream 
from a person that was on the scene at Queen's Park, the provincial government legislature building in Toronto. And that person was Wall's daughter. Wall's eyes whipped from the face of the girl on the screen to the same face depicted in the frame picture that was on his desk. It was his girl, his youngest, Shannon, and she was down there in Toronto in harm's way. Oh no, baby, what are you doing down there? He said out loud as he dialed Shannon's number. She didn't pick up. Mentally, he cursed his wife. She'd promised him that both girls were safely outside the evac zone. But Shannon was his wild one, and she'd never balked at lying to her mother. With growing horror, he watched her on the screen, a full-blown riot taking place behind her in the Queen's Park courtyard. Fires burned, crowds surging around them, tossing in whatever items they could find to add to the growing blazes while in the distance... Another group rocked and rocked a police car, eventually tipping it over. Of course she's there, he thought. Shannon was going through school to be a human rights lawyer. He listened to her live stream for a moment, talking about the injustice that was taking place, about how people shouldn't have to choose between their safety and their right to reject an unknown and unwanted injection. Wall turned his head on the open laptop beside him, the Prime Minister was being fed a constantly evolving briefing from his staff on some of the extent of the damage. This was a feed that was coming from his aides internally to him. Drone footage showing scene after scene of nightmarish disaster unfolding across the evac zone. Currently, that screen was showing a washout so big as to be unimaginable. The drone capturing the footage hovered over a suburb that sat poised amongst farmland with a crop of beans in behind the homes. The neighborhood was elevated on a bluff that sloped down towards the lake. Half of the houses were already gone. The footage had been recorded just before nightfall. There was still enough light to see that the neat straight rows of the bean field ended in a diagonal washout that had taken half of the field and the homes down the hill along with it. At the bottom, the water was raging in muddy torrents that pushed along vehicles and rooftops and other debris down towards the lake. Wall looked back and forth between the two screens, and it was obvious from where he sat that the ground was going to collapse, and when it did, his daughter and the rioters and all of the rest of the people still remaining in the evac zone were as good as dead. If they did not get on the buses, there was no way out. Balls. He grabbed for his tumbler of gin over ice and took a long pull. Then he slammed down the glass and picked up the red phone on his desk, dialing Cochrane's number once again. In his private jet, flying through the Pyrenees Mountains on the other side of the world, Cochrane picked up. Cochrane. God damn it, Cochrane, throw me a freaking bone. Make the call. Back down on the injections. Back down on the debt disclosure. Get these people out of here. The downtowns are swarming in the evac zone. Thousands of people are still trapped without a way out of the evac zone. People of color, minorities, low income. How will it look if the marginalized are overwhelmingly the victims of this disaster? If the death toll exists in greater numbers amongst people of color, they need to get on the buses and get out of the evac zone. The buses are there, but they're empty. 
the people refuse to get on them because of the conditions you placed on it. They won't take your injection. They don't trust it. They can see through it that it's not for their own good. I can't handle the stress of this, watching them fight and loot and try to defend their free choice like the goddamn ground isn't about to give way under their feet. Cochran said nothing for a moment. He glanced over at Cynthia, sleeping snugly under a luxurious mink throw beside him, and then he looked out the window. To his left, the sun was just rising, with orange and gold tones lighting up a vista that could only be labeled magnificent from where he sat, high above the ground, with the purple slopes and white peaks of the mountains rising majestically in front of him. His destination was coming into view, an immense mountaintop villa that sat perched and untouchable at the top of a very high peak in the near distance. As they drew closer, he watched the gold sunlight glinting off the many palatial windows of his villa and thought about what Wall was asking him. He was asking him to give up on Resolute, maybe not forever, but for now. He was asking Cochrane to set aside his own agenda to let Wall use his flag buses for an actual humanitarian purpose, the evacuation of a piece of ground which had become unstable by Cochrane's and his friends' own hands. But Resolute was an operation if nobody took the injections. Even if just a few of them took the needle and got on the buses, Resolute couldn't run that way. It needed to be at full capacity because that was the business model he had developed it on. And Cochrane had worked too long and put too much effort into Resolute to see it fail. He couldn't take the chance of attempting it with only partial uptake, not when it was to be the model that was to be held up as a shining success to be replicated in additional locations all over the world. Regretfully, he concluded that a partial complement of slaves wasn't going to cut it. He would have to put Resolute on hold until it could be attempted again when conditions were more favorable. Damn you, Jenna Walters, he growled. She had fucked up his pet project for him, his greatest achievement, for now, and he vowed to himself that he would get his revenge on her. That and double down on his efforts to figure out a way to make Resolute a success. He thought about not making the call. In fact, if Wall had called five minutes later, Cochran definitely would not have bothered, but there was still a few minutes before the plane landed at a small nearby airstrip where Cochran and Cynthia would board the helicopter that would take them up to the villa. All right, he sighed. You win. I'll make the call. Thank you, said Wall. He hung up the phone and laid his head on his arms on the desk, and then the Prime Minister of Canada broke down and cried. Cochran dialed his assistant. Abort mission. It's not working. They won't get on the buses. Tell the crews to stand down. Pack away the injections. Put away the guns and the debt contracts. I am authorizing the buses to make one humanitarian trip outside the evac zone. Have them load up and drop people off, then relocate the buses back up to storage at Resolute. Make sure there are photos of the evac. That's good PR. Make sure it goes up on our website. He hung up the phone. 
There was another call that he had to make. He dialed the number. On the other end, the line was picked up right away. Hello? Call them off. Tell them the bus crews will stand down on the injections. Make it seem like the protesters won. I want that to be the footage. The bus crews will back down. The people can get on. They'll be dropped just outside the evac zone. And they can survive on their own like rats out there for all I care. They win. They can be refugees for the rest of their life. More displaced, useless eaters sucking on the government's teeth. On the other end, the man paused. Are you sure? I'm sure. It's enough. Stand them down and await my instructions, Cochran said. I'll be in touch. He hung up. On the other end of the line, the man put the phone down and scratched at his Illuminati tattoo. He scratched and he scratched, and the flakes of skin drifted upwards from his arm to hover in a corona in the black rave lighting of the warehouse that he sat in before settling back down on the armrest. He scratched for a long time, agitated, considering, and then finally, he sent a group message to his contacts to tell them the new instructions. In the downtown cores of the evac zone, hundreds of phones lit up with a message and the mood of the protest shifted to go along with the new narrative because that was how it was done. That was how easy it was for Cochrane to pull the strings that ran the workings of the world. The brawling ended. The people started getting on the buses. The narrative shifted. In his office, Wall closed his eyes and sagged with relief. The Prime Minister's phone rang. Dad! Dad, it worked! The protesters got their way. The bus crews backed down on the injections. It's a win for human rights. I know, sweets. I'm glad. You get out of there now. You hear me? It's okay, Dad. I can go now. I've got my car here. I'm getting in it now and heading home. See you in a few hours. Shannon hung up. High above the Pyrenees, with the pink gold of the rising sun coming in through the luxury plane's window, to shine on his face on his way to his private mountaintop fortress. Eric Cochran looked out with his dead, cold eyes at a view so spectacular that only a handful of the world's richest citizens could ever lay eyes on it. And he plotted, and he thought, and he built up the new narrative in his mind. He would never give up on Resolute. Never. He would find a way to make it happen. It was just a matter of time. Lodi and Wanda were soaked to the skin by the time that they made it, and he sagged with relief when the jeep's headlights picked up the shape of the municipal building. At least they were out of the rain, he thought. The journey had been challenging. The damage that had occurred in the area around Mount Bridges had been shocking to come across. At one point, the road they had been traveling on, a little two-lane rural blacktop, had been completely washed out. In the darkness, it had been almost impossible to see until they were upon it. Lodi had slammed on the brakes with the front tires of the Jeep inches from the drop-off. He'd gotten out and shone a flashlight into what now looked like a raging river bottom, six or eight feet lower than the roadway. The thin asphalt skin of the pavement sitting atop the sandy banks of the deep washout had truly brought it home for him 
just how flimsy the surface level veneer of society really is. He'd had to back up the Jeep and trailer and turn around and on the detour that they'd taken, skirting along the residential area, they'd seen the aftermath of an even bigger washout from the cars that were stacked, some on top of others, some overturned, some partly submerged under a slurry of muck. It was clear that the torrent of water that had charged through that area had been deep and it had been strong. Jesus, Wanda had said, leaning forward to peer out through the windshield wipers and into the chaos that the glow of the headlights lit up. I hope no one was hurt. She had said a quick prayer, and they had moved on. They'd emerged into moonlight a few miles further, coming to the last of the rain and the last of the washout area simultaneously. As they drove onto dry pavement, and drew closer to the municipal building. The only light they could see was a cluster of campfire light up on the ridge. Lodi looked from there to the back of the building and saw that the place was dark. You think they've gone up to the ridge? Wanda shook her head. Let's check the parking lot out front. They wouldn't have gone up to the ridge without leaving a note or a sentry. Pull around front and we'll see. They crept around the corner of the building, the battered boat trailer clunking and banging behind them. When the circle of people grouped around the small campfire came into view, Lodi let out a whoop and grinned at her. Wanda smiled weakly in return, and he could see in the glow from the dashboard how drained she was. They pulled up a short way from the fire. Lodi cut the engine and jumped out, then jogged around to help Wanda down on her side. Thanks, she said. My legs aren't too steady right now. You've been through a lot, doll. He wrapped an arm around her shoulders and squeezed her against him, then led her over to the campfire. Jenna saw them coming and rose, and when Lodi's eyes met hers, he felt a glow spread somewhere deep inside him. Her face was electric. You came back, she said. He nodded. Told you I would. She grinned and then gestured towards where she'd been sitting, perched on the edge of the wooden planter box. Want to sit by the fire? The power is out in the building. There's no lights. Actually, there is, kind of. We brought candles when we came back, said Deb Hathaway, and Lodi wasn't surprised to see that she sat on Victor's lap with her head leaning back on his shoulder. Got him in the bathrooms and up in the council chamber, too, Vic said. Then he yawned into the back of his hand. Jenna was peering at Wanda. You want to sit down, Wanda? Jenna asked, stepping closer to the older woman and laying a hand on her arm. Wanda shook her head. I'm pooped. Is that where we're sleeping? The council chamber? I might just go on up there and make myself a bed. I brought quilts from the farm before. Wanda pressed a fist to her mouth and bit down on her knuckles, wincing. Then she shook her head roughly to clear it. She looked up into Jenna's concerned eyes. Then she sighed. I'm fine. I just, I need to lay down. These old bones of mine have been through hell today. Jenna nodded. Of course, I'll take you up there. Here, let me. We'll go, Deb broke in, standing. We're going up anyway, aren't we, Vic? Sure thing, Vic replied. I'm beat. Long day. He brushed off the seat of his pants and stretched. Come on, Wanda, let's get you inside and get comfy.
He winked at her, proffering in his arm, and Jenna noticed that she took, took it and leaned on it gratefully. Good night, doll, Loda, I said. I'll come get you if anything interesting happens. See that you do, Wanda smiled, and then the three of them disappeared into the darkened building. Jenna was looking at Lodi, a puzzled expression on her face. Lodi, is Wanda okay? She seemed done for. He uttered a short bray of humorless laughter. Yeah, well, you would be too if you saw what we've been through. I'd say there's a good chance her house has collapsed by now. The water was up to the porch. Besides, Lodi gripped her hand, lowering his voice. We had a little run-in with Doucette. Jenna's face went white. Doucette was out there? Where? How did he find you? Lodi shrugged. I guess he must have followed us. Did he try to hurt you? Yeah, he, he shot at us a few times. He had a hold of Wanda. He held a gun on her and threw her to the ground. She hit the ground hard and I shot him. Lodi finished quietly. He cut his eyes to hers as she saw the flash of defiance there. Jenna drew in a chest full of air, then let it out slowly. She didn't know what to say. Look, I had to, okay? He killed my whole squad. Jenna swallowed thickly, looking up at him, and she raised her chin a fraction and gripped his hands firmly. I'm sorry for your loss, she said. That must have been hard, losing your friends. Lodi's head fell. He squeezed his eyes shut tight and pinched the bridge of his nose between his thumb and his forefinger. When he opened them again, she saw the telltale sparkle of tears before he wiped them away. I live with that pain every day. He would have killed you too, Jenna, but he would have done things to you first. I couldn't let him. I couldn't. She cut him off. I'm not upset that Doucette's dead, if that's what you're worried about. After what they did today, after all the lives that landslide took and all the lives that will be lost when the flood comes, he deserved it. Just for having a place on the board of flag, he got what he asked for and none some. I'm glad that you lived and he didn't. That's one down. Besides, did you see what he did to my bike? Jenna winked at him. One corner of his mouth quirked upwards in a sad half smile. He turned his head, nodding in the boat's direction, and changed the subject. We almost didn't make it back here with that thing. It's bad out there. The ground's gone soft in places. So I hear. Jenna frowned. Together they looked out at the outlying areas around the municipal building, which sat on a small rise of ground that was still, for the moment, holding firm. You think we should relocate up to the ridge? He thought about it. This is a sturdy building and we'll be on the top floor. If the water comes, we'll have a little warning. That's what I think too. We'll head up to the ridge in the morning. She smiled at him a little shyly and curled her fingers into his. You did good, she said. She felt a blush rise into her cheeks and hoped he wouldn't notice in the firelight. He did. The moment was broken by the pop and hiss of a beer can cracking open and then a long belch from the campfire a few meters away. Hey, hombre, 
a slurring voice called out. You up for a beer, man? Lodi glanced down and saw that Jenna had one, then nodded. Brother, I would kill for a beer right about now. The kid with the dark bang swinging in front of his eyes laughed and tossed one over. Jenna waited while he took a long pull, then they sat down together on the plant box. The girl with the pale hair began to strum softly on her guitar, and Lodi looked over at Jenna, who felt herself blush even further under the scrutiny of his gaze. He reached out and lifted the hair from her temple, then winced. She laughed at the face that he made. It looks worse than it feels, she said. The bandage was white and clean again, but the flesh around it had swollen to a mottled purple. Good thing, she shrugged. Would have been a lot worse if you hadn't grabbed me when you did and hauled me out of there. The way that glass and bricks were raining down, I'm lucky I wasn't shredded to ribbons. Don't remind me, he said. They smiled geekily at each other. Feeling suddenly shy, he turned to watch the flames, but she felt his fingers tighten on hers. She returned the pressure after a moment, and he looked back at her. That was some speech you made earlier. I don't think I would have had the balls to defy the Prime Minister on national television, but you did. Wouldn't want to play you at poker, he winked. She laughed, but a few of the heads were nodding around them. Heck yeah, said the girl with the guitar. She stopped playing. When I heard what you said, I couldn't believe it. I never thought this day would come, when one of us would actually rise up against them. But that's what we're doing, because of you. Jenna's smile faltered. She was suddenly reminded of the weight of responsibility that sat on her shoulders. She had been the one to get them into this. Look, I want you to know, it's not legal what we're doing. We've been ordered to leave. We're breaking the law. We're squatting on dangerous ground. Hell, for all I know, the army might come in here and rip us all out. We'll stay for as long as we can, but in the meantime, if you should happen to get caught, any of you, or arrested, just tell them you couldn't get out. Don't say that you stayed on purpose. Say you tried to leave and failed. I'm sure they'll believe you. From what I've been hearing, the land isn't passable anyway. It's going to be dangerous, Jenna told them, sober. Some of us might not make it. The girl with the long hair nodded. She held her guitar close against her and looked over the top of it into the fire. At last, she looked back up at Jenna. I'd rather die than live like that. The media corporations have stolen my generation's privacy. They're trying to turn us into consumer-bought puppets, two-dimensional talking heads, liking this and liking that, adding our tiny little profile picture to the line of pictures already there, using our faces to endorse their shitty products that do nothing but waste resources in the name of profit. I'm sick of being leered at in the grocery store and knowing that the dude who creeped me out is going to go home and have access to pornography that dehumanizes women so he can picture my face on the girl that's being victimized while he jerks off to her pain and subjugation because that's big industry as well. And somewhere, someone's making tons of money from it, from dehumanizing women and tricking guys into thinking that we secretly want to be degraded that way. It's just like the scam they were running with the fracking. They don't care who gets hurt just as long as they stay rich. Well, fuck that, she said, 
tossing her head so her bangs swung out of her line of sight. The life that they're selling ain't no life. Jenna met her eyes. She knew exactly the feeling that the young girl had described. It was the feeling of being meat, and she'd felt it herself often enough. She'd never really thought about the cause of it before, but as she reflected on the pale-haired girl's words, she realized it was possible that it was true. She smiled at the girl in the firelight. What's your name? asked Jenna. The blonde girl smiled back. Caitlin, but you can call me Kate. My friends do. Kate it is. I'm Jenna, and this is Lodi. It's nice to meet you. Right on. After a while, Kate began to strum once more. Jenna felt her heart catch in her throat as the plaintive strains of Bob Cajun by the tragically hip arose, the notes hanging like ornaments on the boughs of the air. She found herself joining in, quietly linked singing alongside Kate's much stronger voice when the familiar refrain brought forth a wave of nostalgia for the way that Canada used to be during the time it was written, during the time when Gord Downey was alive. That night in Toronto, with its checkerboard floors, riding on horseback, and keeping order restored till the men they couldn't hang, stepped to the mic and sang, and their voices rang with that airy and twang. I got to your house this morning, just a little after nine. In the middle of that riot, couldn't get you off my mind. What I wouldn't give to go back to those days, she said softly, when Canada was still the true north, strong and free. Lodi took a swallow of his beer and pulled Jenna towards him, into the warmth of his arm. Those days are gone, he said, but better ones are coming and I'm happy that I'm going through them with you. They sat that way for a long time, listening to the quiet music and soft laughter while they stared into the fire. When at last the hippies turned in for the night, filing along into their VW microbus like students returning dutifully inside after recess, Jenna turned to him, suddenly shy. They were alone at the campfire and the presence of their isolation sat like a third person beside them. There was a them now, she realized, the thing that had been like a magnet between them all day, invisible yet strong, the palpable current that had settled over each like a shroud and honed their attention on the other had now morphed. It had brought two individual humans together and made them a they. They were connected. Neither spoke, not at first, Soon they would, soft conversations that drifted in and out of the mundane, veering too often into the crazed circumstances they found themselves in, and she found herself thinking of those lines again, the lyrics from the song Kate had been playing. In the middle of that riot, I couldn't get you off my mind. She realized she was tired, the heat of the fire penetrating her body so that the weariness rose to the surface. It suddenly seemed like a long time ago, eons, that she had woken up from her nightmare and made the trip on her bike to the office that morning. She tried to stifle a yawn, blocking her mouth with her hand and squinting her eyes while trying to keep her lips together, succeeding only in corking up one side of her mouth while the other gaped open, a leer. 
This had seemed preferable in strategy at the time, overturning her head away from his face in order to yawn discreetly into her arm. But when she realized how she must look from his point of view, she burst out laughing. He joined her, his laugh a soft tremolo that rose from his chest, invoking the image of melted caramel in her mind. When the laugh died away, there was a frank and honest hunger in her eyes, and he needed no interpretation to tell him what it meant, because he felt it too. They both began to speak, and then both stopped. He gestured for her to continue. You first. We can't. They're all sleeping in the council chambers. All the blankets are in there. It's the only. I don't want to. We can go in the boat. I need to get it ready anyway. It's not that big, but we'll be private at least, below deck. I've got some blankets. She nodded, clinging to his hand as he pulled her to his feet. She rubbed her arms, waiting while he clambered up onto the trailer and unsnapped one corner of the cover that closed off the boat's interior compartment. He held the flap of it up for her, a a triangle entry hatch. She placed one foot on the trailer and hopped up, poised for a second on the square tube frame of the trailer, her arms outstretched for balance. Then she bent from one knee and stepped gracefully inside. He was right behind her, guiding her to one corner before grabbing the cushions from the bench seats and laying them down. He took her hand and helped her down to them, and she lay on her side with her hands clasped together under her cheek, watching the the small triangle of stars disappearing snap by snap as he closed the canvas cover back up, leaving them in darkness so complete it rendered their bodies invisible. She heard the swish of his movement, and then he was there, face to face, his legs twined together with hers as his hands settled onto her waist. There was a time when they stayed that way, pressed close together with nothing but the closeness of each other's flesh and sensation, and then the time came when that ended. They kissed, and she buried her fingers in his hair and drew him towards her, pulling him closer against her. She felt his hands roving her body and shuddered, and as she did, the feeling came back to her that this was the way she had always dreamt she would one day be kissed. This was the sensation she had been striving for, the oft-remembered glimpse inside a dream in which she felt exactly like she did at this precise moment, even down to the shape of his hardness against her, pressing against her groin. She had kissed him before in her dreams, and that wasn't all. His face had never been visible, but she knew his size and his smell, and his taste. The sensation of his hands on her skin was familiar to her also. It was like coming home, and suddenly she knew exactly how he would feel when inside her. She buried her teeth in his neck, wanting it, wanting him, wanting that feeling of being perfectly whole, perfectly filled, complete, and she found that it was so. She closed her eyes when he entered her, losing herself in the moment, the feeling of relief that came from the satisfaction of a lifetime of craving, a desire unfulfilled that lay hidden underneath the level of her consciousness through her day-to-day life, but was there all the time, just the same. She rolled her head on the cushion from side to side, 
then bent forward, rising up towards him, on top of him, taking control, driving her own body's rhythm out onto his. They clung to each other, and when they were done, when their bodies were spent, and they lay against each other, her head fell back once again, and his dropped, his chin coming to rest against her collarbone, so that she felt the answering strains of his heartbeat thumping in tandem with hers. After a while, he slid down her body, his cheek on her stomach as he bear-hugged her waist, and she stroked his hair, tucking her other arm under her head on the cushion. He crushed her against him, his head pressing into the flesh of her stomach, the reassurance of her warm skin against him, letting him know she was real. He had someone to cling to. He felt as though this was her center, the essence of her, the seat of her soul, this soft, yielding flesh where her belly dipped inwards, hollow against his cheek, and he held her there, sacred, against him. I will always protect you, he thought, as he dropped into a light sleep, his muscles twitching, shutting down to recover from the strain of his evening's exertion. He'd been wound tighter than a guitar string throughout his excursion out into the wilds, for that's what the area, formerly known as Mount Bridges, had become. He had killed a man, and seasoned as he had become at that task in the desert, it still took its toll. She felt the slack go out of him and smiled, toying lightly with the ends of his close-cropped hair. She let him sleep for half an hour or so, content to just lay there and smile and bask in the warmth of his body, her breast bare in the darkness, her mind filled with the remembered sensations of his hands and his lips on them, loving them, loving her. After a time, she stretched, easing herself from beneath him and making her way to the flap, where she opened the triangle of moonlight back up and got herself into her clothing. She pulled his sweater over his hips, guarding him against the chill from the night, then knelt beside him and shook him awake. I'll wait for you outside. We should get in there before they come looking. Nodding, he groaned, tugging lightly at her hand, trying to draw her down towards him again but she slipped from his grasp and hopped down to the asphalt. A noise from the back of his jeep caught her ear, and cautiously she walked over and lifted the corner of a blanket to peer underneath. What she saw made her laugh out loud, and when he emerged from the boat a second later, she whirled to face him, a hand on her hip. Lodi, what the hell are you doing with those chickens? He ducked his head for a moment, and then nonchalantly, sauntered over to her side, where he reached an arm inside the cage and began to stroke his clucking hen, soothing her with the sound of her own name. Easy, princess. Easy, girl. Princess? You named your hen princess? Jenna hooted, and Lodi leveled the scowl at her. He tethered the two cages firmly to the front of the boat, and murmured goodnight to his birds before walking a circuit of the vessel and freeing it of the ties that bound it to the trailer. Of course, look at the crown on her. She's my best girl, Lodi said, winking at Jenna as he looped an arm casually around her shoulders. He stowed, he stowed his hockey bag in the boat also, then reached back and pulled free the anchor, 
which he dropped on the ground at his feet. He knelt to check that the neat coils of rope that attached it were untangled, and then together they headed for the building to go join the others. That is, she was my best girl. Not anymore. Lodi said this to Jenna as he held the door open for her. She felt butterflies rising up in her stomach at this, and then they made their way falteringly through the dark up the three flights of stairs that led to the council chambers to sleep. In a small fishing boat anchored on the waters of Lake Huron off the western shore of the Bruce Peninsula, a woman named Penny Sullivan was asleep. Exhausted, she and her children had passed out in a tangle of limbs under blankets, lulled by the gently rolling waters of the lake. They were evacuees with no particular plan where to go, and as it happened, they were the only ones to see what happened to the Bruce when it began to let go. Penny jolted awake, her body thrusting her upright to a sitting position before her eyes had even opened. Her heart pounding, she strained her ears in the darkness for the source of the noise that had woken her. A terrible crack split the night. It echoed off the surface of the water like the report from a rifle, louder than the loudest of thunderclaps. Penny raked the night sky with her eyes, but there were no storm clouds in sight only the stars twinkling down at her. She heard a low rumble that resonated in the pit of her stomach, growing quickly to engulf her in sound so that she felt the vibrations in her skull. She pressed her hands to her ears and saw thousands of tiny bubbles rising, the surface of the water fizzing like soda. Penny didn't like those bubbles. She wrinkled her nose, sniffed at the air, the foul smell of sulfur wafted up from the water. Not good, she thought. She scooted backwards out of the tangle of sleeping bags and went to the helm. She started the engine and swung the boat around to face the peninsula, idling it on the anchor, finding the steady prattle of the motor somewhat comforting. Her son Jeff woke up first, then her daughter, Veronica. Instinctively, they both crept over to sit by their mother, edging as close as they could to her warmth. What's going on, Mom? Veronica's voice was a whisper, but Penny didn't dare take her eyes off the shadow of the Bruce. I don't know, babe. Something. I don't like it. They fell silent, the three of them staring resolutely at the darkened peninsula where it arose just a short way off, backlit by the dazzling night sky. Suddenly, another loud crack echoed out over the water, followed by another, and then another in rapid succession, until the individual cracks became indistinguishable, melding into a rumble. Like a sleeping giant, grinding his teeth, Penny thought wildly. The noise was unbearable. It sounded like a runaway freight train, lumbering headlong and screeching, as they watched with their hands clapped over their ears. The mighty Bruce broke. Then the rumble was deafening. A chunk of rock calved off, crashing to the water on their side of the peninsula. It was followed by another, and then an explosion from somewhere up top lit the night sky with orange fire. What she saw in the glow seared Penny's heart. The Bruce had been her home all her life, and it was breaking into segments, chunks shearing off into the water, 
the landmass becoming fragmented, disintegrating, one chunk, one massive, monstrously huge segment of granite rolled in a slow arc towards them. Its shadow loomed large as it toppled. The stars behind it winked out, only to reappear again all too soon as the mammoth chunk of earth toppled forward, pushing a wall of water ahead of it. Penny caught the glint of moonlight on its crest, and then the giant wave was heading towards them. Hang on, Penny screamed. She wished she had hauled up the anchor, but there was no time for that now. All she could do was head the boat into the giant wave as it barreled down on them. She heard the screams of the children, but she kept her eyes trained on the glistening black monster that lumbered towards them. She had the nose pointed straight for it, and then all too soon, it was there. Oh, please God help us, please God help us, please God help us, Penny screamed, clinging tight to the controls. She held on for dear life as the boat rocketed backwards. The prow surged straight up. Jeffrey grabbed his little sister and held her between his arms, pinning her body to the gunwale. Veronica looked behind them and saw that the boat was nearly vertical, but she kept her grip tight on the railing. The line to the anchor pulled taut. It had run out of slack, and as it pulled, the boat crested the wave. They slammed down into the trough on the other side. Penny looked for her children. They were safe. She turned to watch the giant hulking shape of the wave continue off into the distance. Another wave followed, then another, terrifying to navigate, but they made it. When it finally calmed enough that she could gather her bearings, she saw that the bruce was gone. All that was left in the place it had been was a few diminishing splashes of unsettled water and a sea of debris bobbing on the surface. Thank God they got it evacuated, she thought. Behind them, the massive black waves were no longer visible. They were heading toward the mainland, right where the nuclear plant was. Penny snatched up her radio. Mayday, mayday, the Bruce has fallen. I repeat, the Bruce Peninsula has gone down. A massive wave is headed inland. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Penny repeated the message over and over again. She got no response, but still, she kept trying. What's going on, Mom? Jeff asked. Can't they hear us? Penny continued to try until, by her estimation, the wave would have struck the far shore of Lake Huron and then some, and then she gave up. God help them, she thought. Thank you for sparing us. She replaced the radio handset back in its cradle and looked at her children. I guess not. She cut the boat's engine, plunging them into silence. As she herded her children back to their nest of sleeping bags, and lay down with one arm tucked around each of them. Penny Sullivan looked up at the stars, and she knew that she'd never felt so alone in her entire life. The End Epilogue They say the rock remembers, but it doesn't. It's the water. The water charts its long familiar courses. It runs through channels etched in ancient rock worn smooth by the progressive flow of eons, lifting out whatever debris and sediment that has settled in its tunnels 
and removing them off to the side effortlessly, not caring for what it dishevels. The water remembers. It seeks out its old homes, its old resting places, it holds its old haunts hollowed out by its use. And when the damaged rock of the bruce at last succumbed that night, the water rose up over it, crashing and sprawling to fall over the broken land in a torrent as the earth did what it needed to do to heal itself from the damage of man. That was the situation that the people sleeping in the municipal building found themselves in. The town had been built on the old lake bed when, like a long-delayed lover, the water returned to claim the spaces it had once held. As the first gray rays of the dawn broke over the ridge, the long, low rumble of the quake came to them unhindered through the shattered out window, and then they were falling. There was the feeling of vertigo as the ground underneath of them dropped, sinking towards the center of the earth as the immense weight of gravity bore down. The land they were on turned to liquid. The building's foundation disintegrated, but parts of the structure remained more or less intact as it plunged, and in the distance, an orange mushroom cloud exploded upwards into the pre-dawn light. In the chaos, the shockwave from the nuclear explosion came towards them. When it hit, the shell of the building swayed, a nauseating ripple that traveled from one end to the other, and then it broke, splitting in two, tearing like a wet paper bag, one end collapsing in a heap of rubble that quickly disappeared, pulled downwards into the churning slurry that swallowed it. The people inside what was left of the building awoke to madness. The door to the council chambers opened on the rose-gray sky with the tall silhouette of the mushroom cloud rising into the sky in the distance. The stairwell was there, but the roof over top of it was gone. As the waters cascaded towards them, it was a tumultuous rush to get out to grapple their way down the stairway that canted and shifted under their feet as the water foamed up from beneath. A flurry of hands clutching hands, white knuckles on handrails, four or even five stair risers cleared in a single desperate bound as the people trapped inside the crumbling building broke for the exit as the giant wall of water surged towards them. Lodi hauled Wanda over his shoulder his free hand gripped tightly to Jenna's as they looked wildly around to make sure that all of the others were out. They charged for the stairs, but by then the water had reached them. It was climbing the risers, the flood surging up from below. He turned them back. The window! He could barely be heard over the noise, but they sprinted to the blown out window, feeling disoriented and crazy. Jenna ran alongside of him as the floor tilted wildly and collapsed. They looked back once as the water crashed into the room, toppling desk chairs and tables, and then Lodi was up on the ledge, hauling her up there behind him. He tightened his arm around Wanda's waist, gripped Jenna's wrist in his fist, then looked the question into her eyes. Are you ready? She nodded. It was all they could do. The water had come. It had risen. Most of the building was submerged. They could see Chester's fishing boat bobbing around on its anchor just a stone's throw away from where they stood. They jumped. 
Jenna felt him let go of her hand as she surfaced. Her head darted up out of the water as she saw him a few meters away, hauling Wanda behind him and swimming hard for the boat. She followed. The current was awesome. It sucked at her, dragged at her, trying to buffet her away with it, away from the boat. It took all her strength, everything she had, but she strained to keep swimming. Her body was battered by objects that scurled in the current, but she was strong. She was an athlete. She kept her eyes glued to the hull, and she made it. Get to the boat, Lodi called to the others who were still in the water. He had climbed up on deck and was trying to pull Wanda up behind him. Jenna saw Wanda clinging to the side of the boat. She was up to her neck in the water, her hair plastered to her skull. Her eyes were closed. Jenna reached her, and working together with Lodi, they managed to get her on board. As Wanda struggled for breath, Jenna climbed up beside Lodi, helped him haul the last of the others on board. Jenna saw with relief that Tamara was among them. She saw Carrie, too, and Victor Paul, and Deb Hathaway, Anderson, and Jay Marksman, plus herself, and Wanda Blake, and Lodi James. Mary! Jenna screamed. Mary was missing. She turned to look back at the municipal building, just in time to see what was left of it fall. It collapsed like a house of cards in the wind, and she saw the concrete dust that swirled up from the water as it swallowed the last of the bricks, even as the lightest pieces of debris from the building began to disperse, bobbing away on the current. The surrealism for Jenna was epic as she watched one of the cushions from the sofa in the lounge float away alongside of a few printed agendas from the town's last ever council meeting. She was watching the end of an era in progress. She strained her eyes for a glimpse of Mary's head bobbing to the surface, but Mary was gone. Mary, Jenna wailed, and then she caught herself. She pressed a fist to her mouth, turning to look at Tamara, who had her face buried against Carrie's chest as she cried. He murmured against her hair, soothing her as best he could. Carrie met Jenna's eyes, and the sorrow they contained broke her heart. Mrs. Lee didn't make it, he said, as his eyes overflowed and his lower lip trembled. What's his name, too, the red-headed guy that came here with him? Carrie nodded his head in Anderson's direction, and the young scientist cleared his throat. Andrew. Andrew Summers. That was his name. He was a brave man, a good man, and you're right. He didn't make it. Andrew and Mrs. Lee both. We passed them on the way out. The steel from the ceiling trusses fell right on top of them. I felt for a pulse, but there's no... There wasn't... They were still holding hands, he finished, and Jenna saw that he was crying as well. Jenna felt like she'd been kicked in the stomach. She looked for Lodi, found him crouched on the prow, cranking his head wildly, left and right. He was still on the lookout for survivors, but there were no more dark heads in the water. His face fell. He braced his hands on the gunnels and dropped his head between his shoulders in despair but then a chorus of voices hailed them. 
It was the youths from the microbus rowing towards them in a fiberglass canoe from around the far side of what was left of the tree that still showed above the surface. There were four of them in there, teenagers, and when Jenna saw that the blonde girl, Kate, was with them, clutching her guitar in her hands and hugging it to her chest, she sighed with relief. Lodi and Vic reached across the expanse and grabbed onto the edge of the canoe. There's room in the boat. Why don't you climb on in and we'll tie your canoe alongside, Vic said. The four teens gratefully complied, scrambling into the waiting vessel while Lodi secured their canoe to the boat. Lodi's eyes sought out Jenna's. Are we good? She looked around. They were alone on the surface of the water. No more heads bobbed towards them. No more swimmers. Just the top third of a tree that used to stand over a hundred feet tall, now mostly submerged in the green light of dawn in which a radioactive fireball burned on the horizon. She nodded, morose. We're good. There's nobody left that we know of. Any survivors will head up to the ridge any way they can. I hope they're okay up there. Lodi settled in beside the outboard motor and starting it up, turned his head to scan the top of the ridge. Looks like that area is still dry. Let's hope it stays that way, Jenna said, and they headed towards it. They didn't speak much during the voyage. The pallor of shock hung on all of them, and in the dead that they saw in the water didn't do much to alleviate it. Jenna watched the bodies float by, again remembering her dream. It had been a premonition. There was no denying that now. If it was, then was everything that's happened meant to be? She didn't know anymore. Of the people who had been sleeping in the council chambers when the subsidence occurred, nine had survived. Two had died, Mary and Andrew Summers. That was on Jenna. She felt the weight of their deaths land on her heart and looked up at the sky. I'm so sorry, she thought. The nine of them who had survived had been joined by the four hippies from the canoe, but so far, despite the fact that Lodi knelt on the prow with his eyes trained in the water, no more survivors have been found. There were plenty of dead in the water. There just weren't any living. Wanda drove. She sat with her back to the stern one arm slung behind her, keeping a slow, level speed on the outboard motor. She scratched absently at a rash of red welts that had broken out along her upper arm. The silence hung amongst them heavy. The morning was humid. A haze of blue smoke lay on the horizon. As they made their slow progress through the detritus, Jenna's stare remained fixed on the water watching glassily as the debris on the surface tracked by, but her mind kept returning to the image of the red outlined evac zone lit up on the screen behind Prime Minister Wall's shoulder at the press conference. Southwestern Ontario, the small tract of land like a miniature Texas in reverse. It had been an oasis, really, she thought, nestled in the chalice of all that glorious, fresh, clean water. Southwestern Ontario had truly been blessed. It had been idyllic, the crown jewel on the map of North America. And now it was gone. Where it had been, one big lake now lay, undivided and massive, and they in their boat on the putrid surface, floating along with the corpses.
Feeling sick, she wondered what the map, the map looked like now. Had it become an archipelago? Just a series of small islands of granite and sand like the ones they were headed for, with the rest underwater? She sighed. What did I get these guys into? Suddenly, Lodi spoke up from the prow. Holy shit, Wanda, swerve, swerve to the right. We're going to hit it. Wanda's response was instant. She didn't ask what was wrong. She just hauled on the rudder so that the boat changed course. Lodi scrambled to the left side of the boat as they turned, and many of the others peered over that side, over the side that way too. It was a steel meshwork sign, the kind that spanned three lanes of traffic on the highway. The top of the rectangular structure was just inches below the surface of the water, and bizarrely, the digital LED display was still working. Tailgating kills. Leave some space, the sign said. And then, lane closures nightly, Strathroy to Watford. The top right corner of the sign scraped down the left side of the hull. It scratched the boat's paint, but it didn't penetrate. Thank God, Debbie said, and she crossed herself. Wanda corrected their course, piloting them to the ridge. Lodi didn't want to say anything, but now that it was daylight, he could see that the portion of the ridge that was still visible above the water was much smaller than it had appeared. This is not going to be easy, he thought. He scratched at a red mark on his face, glancing at Jenna, who sat with her arm around Carrie and Tamara. She was tough. He could see that. He called to mind the feeling of her body lying warm and naked under him and how he'd sworn that he would die to protect her, and then he whispered a fervent prayer under his breath that it wouldn't come to that. A school of dead fish floated by, their eyes covered in a milky film. Must have been hit by debris, Vic offered. Anderson peered at the fish, a worried expression on his face, but he didn't say anything. Anyone think to bring sunscreen? asked Kate, eyeing the green-gray light of the sun doubtfully. The smoky ghost of the mushroom cloud was still on the horizon. Kate had on a sleeveless blouse, and she rubbed the fair skin on her shoulders protectively. Nobody answered. An alert sounded from somebody's cell phone. It turned out to be Carrie's. Gently, he lifted Tamara's head from his shoulder and rummaged in his pocket. He pulled out a Ziploc bag, which contained his cell phone and some weed. I didn't know if this thing would still work. Looks like the bag kept it dry. He held the phone out in front of him and looked at the message. It's from my boy, Snake. He sent me a GPS location pin. They're somewhere northwest of here. Carrie studied the location, then looked at the ridge for his bearings. Once he had that situated, he looked in the direction of the pin for a long, long time. My man might be out there, he said. As they drew up to the ridge, they could hear conversation. Jenna saw three figures sitting on a rock, watching them approach. One of them was obviously pregnant, and the two men she was with flanked her protectively. Ahoy the boat, one man called, standing up to cup his hands around his mouth. Friend or foe? Friend, Lodi called. He rose up on his knees on the prow, then turned his head and addressed Wanda. Cut the engine, doll. 
This is close enough. Wanda complied, and the silence that rose up in its absence was eerily complete. A lone seagull called out. The boat closed it closer to the ridge, and they heard the swish of tree branches that brushed her hull from beneath. Lodi reached out and grabbed hold of a rope of a root. He snaked the boat's tie rope around it and secured the craft to the ridge, then looked up to see a heavy-set man leading towards him with his arm outstretched. Name's Bert, the man said. Bert Walker. And this here is Abdul and Jamila. We just got here ourselves not too long ago. Hey, Bert, Deb said from behind him. We met on the overpass. Hello. Lodi James, Lodi said. He clasped the man's hand and gave it a pump, a grin breaking over his face. It's good to see you guys. We weren't so sure anyone else had made it. Bert laughed. We almost didn't. I picked up Abdul and Jamila last night after Wall made his address. We figured we'd head out to London and get on the 401 eastbound, go on up to Ottawa. Mila's got family there, and as you can see, she's going to have a baby soon. There was water seeping onto my laneway from a sinkhole three doors down when I went to leave, so I threw my old tin rowboat on top of my truck and set off. Good thing I did, too, because we never made it picked up these two and headed up Longwoods Road, but we got washed out. Water was up over the door handles faster than you could say holy shit, and we had to climb out the windows and clamber up onto the boat. We thought about getting out of it when we got to a safe place, but somehow that never happened. Spent the night on board, and then this morning, boom, the big wave came. Just about tipped us, then it washed us up here. Bert broke off, cackling and caught a glance at Jamila. You sure did look funny, now that I recall, waddling up there with that big belly of yours and your skinny little legs sticking out the bottom. Jamila threw him a look that was scathing. Ha ha, she said dryly, rolling her eyes at Deb, who had clambered out of the boat to come sit beside her. Deb stuck her hand out. My name's Deb, she said brightly. Then she leaned close and whispered in Jamila's ear, how far along are you? Jamila slumped, looking at Deb sadly. Due dates tomorrow. Deb wrapped her arm around Jamila, clucking in sympathy. You poor girl. Well, don't worry. I'm sure the helicopters will be along to rescue people any time now. And if not, we'll help you. Jamila smiled at her gratefully as the rest of them climbed out of the boat. While the others stood around, making introductions, Anderson crouched at the water's edge. He was still thinking about those fish. He hadn't cared for that film on their eyes, not at all. He scratched at the back of his hand, his eyes widening as he looked down at it. He took a closer look. A series of tiny red blisters had formed on his skin. His forehead furrowed in alarm. So how big is this ridge anyway, Carrie asked, walking a little ways off. Anyone thought to explore it yet? I saw a Winnebago over that way, Abdul said, pointing over to a clump of scrubby pines a short distance away. We tried to make it over there, but the way isn't clear. Looks like the ridge is a washout. Wave must have crashed right over this rock, then receded. There's a dip in the ridge. We're separated from that side by water. Morty Sampson had a Winnebago, Jay Marksman spoke up excitedly. 
He told me they were coming up here when we were setting up the PA system. I bet you it's him. And if he's there, that means the reporter might be there too. Vic grabbed Deb's arm. That might mean Jarvis as well. God damn, I never thought I'd say this, but I really hope that kid survived. Let's go see. Deb and Vic started towards the low spot. They stood at the edge of the water that separated them from the far side of the island. It was about 50 meters wide, an expanse of dark water riddled with debris that included more dead wildlife. The corpse of a deer floated at the water's edge, its eyes filmed over with the same milky residue that had been on the fish. Think you can make it? Vic asked Deb, shucking his shirt off and reaching down to untie his shoes. Deb peered at the dead deer, eyeing it doubtfully. I guess so, she said. She sat down and unlaced her work boots, pulling them off with her socks to reveal a perfect pink pedicure. Then she rolled her jeans up into a thick cuff on her calves. They started towards where the water lapped gently at the rock they were standing on and prepared to wade in. A rill of brown scum floated a few feet out and Deb dropped to her knees, leaning close. Ugh, she said, wrinkling her nose. Stinky. It's sizzling, too. I can hear it. She reached out a finger to touch it, and Anderson came charging up behind them, brandishing a dead fish towards them. Don't touch it, he yelled, coming to stand between them and the water. They gaped at him, shocked, but he held up the fish. There's something in the water. It's been poisoned. I don't know if it's radiation or something else. Fucking Cochrane. I told them not to do this, but they did it anyway. They assured me that they weren't, but they obviously were. He dropped his head into his free hand and scrubbed at his face in despair. Jenna came to stand beside him. Did what, Anderson? What did they do? What else did Cochrane and his friends do that you didn't want them to? What else is in this water besides the possible radiation? Anderson looked up at her mournfully letting his tears fall with abandon. The flow back, he said. They injected it back underground. He sighed, making a mental effort to rein in his emotions. He started again. Fracking is done by blasting water and chemicals underground. When the fracking process is complete, those chemicals are withdrawn. The waste fluid they create is called flow back. It's full of all kinds of toxic things, radioactive molecules, acids. Look, it's a terrible substance, okay? It's so bad that it's tough to find a safe place to store it above ground. So what they do in places like Texas is inject it back into the ground, way down deep. I told Cochran he couldn't do that here. Not this close to the Great Lakes. Not in the midst of one of the world's largest freshwater supplies. He assured me that they wouldn't. He said they were trucking it north, injecting it under the ground up in none of it. I should have known from the earthquakes. I should have clued in because injecting the wastewater underground causes earthquakes. Anderson swiped a hand across his face and Jenna heard the rasp of his beer stubble. Anderson, what does this mean? Anderson nodded. It means that between this and the nuclear explosion, the lake water's contaminated. Look at this fish and that deer. Do you see the film that's on them? Look at this rash on my hand. It's on Wanda, too, and Lodi. 
Hell, it's probably on all of us. The toxins absorb through the mucous membranes. They enter the bloodstream. They kill you. Jenna, not only can we not swim in this water, we can't drink it, and we can't eat anything that's been swimming in it. Jenna felt her heart begin to pound. She realized she'd been counting on fish to sustain them, but now what would they eat? She took a step back, fumbling backwards with her hand, reaching for Lodi. He stepped up behind her and clasped her firmly, clasped her hand firmly in his. They were a small cluster of people on top of a shelf of rock, surrounded by water that was poison, the shadow of a nuclear explosion hanging over them, but they were free. Jenna turned in a slow circle, scanning their little island's perimeter. With the addition of the threesome from the rowboat, there were 17 souls on the ridge, plus whoever was on the far side in the Winnebago, Mamie, Jamie and Ricky Jarvis, and Morty Sampson and his family, plus who knew who else was with them. They were all here because Jenna had led them to stay, but she had nothing to feed them. She let her hand slip from Lodi's grasp and placed it flat on her stomach where a rock of dread sat heavy. Then she looked up at Lodi. What have I done? So thank you for listening to Strike Boat to find out what happens as Jenna and her friends explore their new future in a world free from the bonds of capitalism. Please stay tuned for the next book in the series, Archipelago, which I am working on now. And I just want to say again, thank you for listening. And thank you to a few special people who helped me this far. You know who you are. Thank you to my first readers who encouraged me. And I have to honestly say thank you again to the Freedom Convoy in Canada. Watching the Freedom Convoy process unfold while reading this novel out to you, Strike Vote, a novel about freedom, which takes place in Canada down the 401 corridor at the same time as the convoy takes place in Canada down the 401 corridor. It's just been an incredible experience, and I'm truly humbled and grateful to have been a part of it. I'd like to thank the universe for the story behind Strike Vote, for the intuitions that led me to writing it, and for giving me the strength and ability, the proper circumstances to make this happen. I am truly humbled and grateful. God bless you, everyone. Stay free. All the best.